Hi, I'm George Strayton, screenwriter of Hercules and Xena Warrior Princess, and you're listening to Genretainment. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Genretainment here on SciFiPulseRadio.com. We're your hosts, Marks. And Julie. And today we are chatting with writer Christopher Vogler on the show discussing his international best-selling book, The Writer's Journey, Mythic Structure for Writers. He tells us how the book explores the relationship between mythology and modern storytelling in a clear, concise style showing common structural elements found universally in myths, fairy tales, dreams, and movies to help you become a better writer. Now, before we get to our interview, we do want to point out that the music you just heard at the beginning of the show was a snippet from the theme song for our web series, Reality On Demand. It's a song composed and performed by our friend T. Sean Hardy. And you can find our web series at realityondemandseries.com. And speaking of music, see if you can name the music samples before and after the interview. A hint, this film is probably the best example of a hero's journey and modern-day storytelling. Now let's get started with our featured interview for today with the writer Christopher Vogler. Genre Entertainment, and this is your host, Marks. And Julie, and today we welcome to the show Christopher Vogler, the writer of the best-selling book, The Writer's Journey, Mythic Structure for Writers. So thank you for joining us today. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here. All right, well, your book is based on research that started with your studies of Joseph Campbell and the psychologist Carl G. Young. And uh, can you tell us a little bit about your background in the industry and how you got on this path of researching and teaching mythic storytelling? Well, sure. Yeah, I uh, was a farm boy from Missouri, and I came out to Hollywood after working in the in the Air Force. They sent me out to do some work um, making documentaries in uh, in the fringes of Hollywood. And uh, so I went to film school, and I was looking for where's the rules? Where's the rule book or the guidebook or uh, you know uh, there must be some kind of system to this business of telling stories and, and uh, deciding what's, what goes in, what do you leave out, what do you emphasize, and how long should it be, all these kinds of questions. And there really wasn't anything. When I was in film school at the uh, USC School of Cinema, I, uh, we didn't really have any screenwriting textbooks at that time. So I was looking for this uh, answer, you know, and uh, on that quest, I was lucky. I mentioned something in a class about uh, some mythic idea that I had uh, seen in a film. And the professor got excited and said, you, you should, uh, if you're interested in mythic stuff, here's a resource. And he sent me to uh, find the hero with a thousand faces, Joseph Campbell's uh, the primary book uh, where he lays out his, his theory that there's basically one human story and it keeps being repeated in variations. And uh, that's, that, that was sort of like the answer for me. That was the thing I was looking for. And uh, so I set to work trying to test it against all of the films I was seeing and the things I was making in film school. And then when I got into the business, uh, comparing it to the scripts that I was reading professionally and commenting on. So uh, it, it, it helped me to get my bearings there. So that, that's kind of how that process went down. Great. Now, I think you said in the book you became a story analyst and you created this sort of pamphlet, like cheat sheet that really took off. Yeah, I had written a, a paper for a class about the time that Star Wars came out. That uh, dates about when I was in film school. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, that paper was sort of the foundation of my thinking. Uh, but when I was working as an analyst for the Disney Company uh, in the 80s, I said, I, I really want to make this systematic and, and make it useful for people. So I sat down and I wrote about a seven-page memo, which uh, was the way we communicated at Disney at that time, by memos. And uh, that got passed around, and it became sort of part of Hollywood legend. Uh, uh, it was uh, widely duplicated, and uh, it was kind of a sensation when it came out. And uh, it became part of you know the, the basic equipment that everybody had to know uh, in development at that time. And uh, it was helpful at Disney because they were doing mass production, and they needed something systematic to kind of help organize the, the process of developing all these scripts. So uh, it, it, it was good timing for me and, and uh, uh, ended up being, you know, the foundation of my book, uh, which was, is really an extended version of that original memo. Now, I think anytime someone talks about a sort of script writing system like that, uh, there tends to be some skepticism from people. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is the first he's heard of it. <laughs> a little, yeah. And, yeah, I'll tell you, right out of the box. As soon as I printed up that memo and you know Xeroxed a few copies and passed it around, it came flying back at me that uh, oh my God, you know one of the objections was we agree, people would say we know what you're talking about, we agree with it, but it's secret information. It's it's uh, proprietary information that is only for professionals, and they acted like you know people would be like monkeys with nuclear weapons or something if they got hold of this, you know, if it got out. So, you know, some some of the, the criticism uh, or opposition to it was actually endorsing it as something that was real. But there were people who came after it. One of the big charges I've run into is that I oversimplify everything. And I made it, I sort of popularized an idea that's supposed to be esoteric and difficult to understand. And so, you know, I committed some crime. And Campbell got that thrown at him too, Joseph Campbell. He was accused of being a popularizer and a reductionist, that's what they call it, a reductionist. So I'm in good company, I guess. And that's a, you know, you said pretty much as soon as you put it out there, it's a pretty visceral reaction from people. I mean, were you surprised? And, and what do you think was behind that? Well, I thought it was pretty innocent when I, when I tossed it out there. But I found that it does provoke some people. Um, several things that I did uh, were, were provocative, apparently. There was one critic who wrote, uh, at the time that the movie Willow came out, he wrote a commentary about it and, and mentioned this memo of mine, which had been going around, and he said, Willow's going to stink because it followed this pattern. And he, <laughs> said, he said that I was responsible for Ishtar and Howard the Duck and all the great flops of the, the, that, that time period. Uh, I, I don't take all that much credit, but... Um, it, 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 it was a different kind of reaction, and, and I, I realized, okay, I guess there's two kinds of brains or two kinds of uh, people who are watching movies, and, and some of them watch with this sort of what I think is an open mind, and uh, uh, you can see these wonderful poetic uh, connections and uh, see it all as part of this uh, metaphoric world of you know every story is connected to every other story, and then there's a whole bunch of people you know making movies or criticizing movies 
who don't see it that way at all. And they say, no, there's only one kind of movie and one kind of story and one kind of uh, system. And uh, Or they'll say, uh, you've said that. You've said that, that it's only one thing. And uh, there's there's many, many ways to skin the cat, and I, I don't disagree with that. So. But anyway, it, it, it brought up that there there's some emotion to this and uh, uh, that, that a large number of people are just not having the same experience I was having. Mm-hmm. So there, so some people's critique was that it was too reductionist, but in criticizing it, they oversimplified your theory. <laughs> yeah, well, that yeah, yeah, the same the same critic uh, who shall go nameless. I, I was looking, you know, at, at blogs of him what he said about the things recently, and his way of summing up Campbell was, "Oh, Campbell, that's a lot of, of crap." <laughs> so that's kind of a reductionist way to look at Campbell, you know, uh, what a lot of crap. So. So that might be that might fall in the vein of the things we dislike about other people, or actually the things we don't like about ourselves, kind of thing. Oh, that is that is such a true thing in life. That uh, when yeah, that's really true about all this stuff that has been uh, been flung at me. It, it, you just put up a magic mirror and let it bounce back because uh, it, it's definitely a projection of of things that. Uh, people don't like about themselves and you know they're looking for a way to discharge that so yeah. glad to be glad to be that for people if it helps make their day a little nicer <laughs> <laughs> that's that's taken the high road now you also yeah. talk about how the concept of a hero can be different in different countries and I'm a bit of a culture and language junkie so but we've found it really interesting you mentioned differences with heroes in for instance Australia and German cultures so you can yeah, those, tell us a little bit about true. theirs yeah, those were two where I, it, it, it had a little different shading or, you know, they brought me up short about it when I started talking about it. They said, yes, yes, we know what you're talking about, but we have a different way of looking at it. And, you know, the, these are all big generalizations, but uh, they did steer me, you know, towards a, a different way of seeing things. In Germany, it was a, a, a little bit of uh, cultural taint because the word helden or, or hero has been corrupted by its association with World War II and the Nazis and all of that. So they are nervous about it. The world has made them kind of super sensitive about it. Uh, every time, you know, if they try to say, yes, we love heroes, it's like, wait a minute, that's Germans talking, you know. So <laughs> they, they, they have to back off a little bit if, if they do uh, enjoy those things. And it's a big part of their culture, but it got kind of, you know, the wires got messed up and uh, they haven't straightened all that out yet, so they're a little nervous about it. And in Australia, it was more like culturally, the, the, they like heroes, and they have a, a kind of a loose relationship with it. Like their idea of a military hero is a guy who, I'll put on the uniform, but I'm not going to button all the buttons, and I'm not going to wear the hat straight, and I'm, I'm going to rip the thing off and throw it in the corner as soon as the war is over. So they have a, a very much uh, citizen uh, idea of uh, of being any kind of a hero uh, that it's just something you do when you absolutely have to, but you don't you know take it on as your lifetime identity. Mm. So uh, they 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 were you know cautious about it because in their cultural history, uh, Britain has used war posters and imagery of knights in battle and stuff to uh, get their young men to enlist in wars that the Australians don't really care about. So. Uh, it's, uh, it, it's it's something they're you know on <clears throat> on their toes about or sensitive to, but uh, there's lots more to learn. You know, different uh, different cultures. Uh, I'm, I'm finding out even beyond that 
have their have their shavings. Mm-hmm. Well, so what form do heroes take in Australian and German type stories? Well, I think um, there is. Uh, this, I can speak about the Australian ones because I've seen more Australian films and, and, and just see how they they play it out. But it it, it seems to be this reluctance to accept the role at first and putting it off for a long, long time and saying, I'm not the hero and don't try and pin that on me. And that's interestingly expressed in the movie Mad Max, which is one of those films that it, the, the writer didn't know about Joseph Campbell when he created it, but later found out, oh yeah, this is a Joseph Campbell type hero's story. And he has stuff in the text there, George Miller, the writer and director, has stuff in the text with, that talks about heroes and has the characters saying, oh, there's, heroes are dead and so forth. And then one fellow jumps up and says, no, we've got to, we need our heroes and we've got, somebody's got to stand up. And uh, Mad Max reluctantly does that. But the Australians like them better if they put up a big fuss about it. And don't, <laughs> uh, don't, 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 if they don't run down the street going, hey, where's the, where's the sheriff's star? Let me wear that, you know. That's uh, that's considered more manly to uh, say. Nah, it's uh, do I have to? You know, uh, is is more the tone there. <laughs> sort of a don't make a fuss about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and uh, yeah, very very much. Uh, uh, I'm, uh, if I do this job, it doesn't mean I'm any better than anybody else. I think that's the the, the main uh, idea of it. And, and in Germany too, it's you know we might have to do heroic things. But uh, that doesn't give us any privileges in the culture and make us uh, superior, a superior race or anything like that. So mm-hmm. I think that's that's where they're they're sensitive. And then you know in other cultures uh, there are differences. Uh, when I talk in Eastern Europe, sometimes I'll I'll ex- express this American idea that one person can make a difference and one person can change the world. And they say, yeah, we do have characters like that, but we don't call them heroes. We call them fools and idiots. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was just thinking. <laughs> yeah, because who can change? You know, the, the the cultural attitude is so deep there that you know things are the way they are, and you know no one can really change things. So uh, more than but, a healthy uh, dose of skepticism. <laughs> yeah, there's 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 that uh, realism I think they would call it, but then there are stories within those cultures, all those cultures, where somebody does stand up for on behalf of everybody else. And you know, make make a sacrifice of that sort in the proper way, where you're not, you know, trying to be emperor or king or something like that. Now, do you think that maybe with the American idea of a hero going in and it just takes one man to kind of turn a town around and be the sheriff and all that? You think how much do you think that that has to do with our being a younger culture and a younger country than some of these others that we were speaking about? Yes, I think so. I think that it, it uh, was in the origins of, of the shaping of our natural national identity. There was this idea that the, the collective in Europe was so heavy and and so powerful that people sought to escape it and, and maybe move the center of the culture away from the collective to the the individual. You know, there's a spectrum that you can choose in your culture. Are you going to emphasize uh, the collective or the family or the community, or are you going to in, emphasize the individual? And it's interesting in China to see that uh, they're moving that dial a little bit this way and that, and they experiment with it every so often uh, to, to let people have a little more individual expression, you know, just to get things back in balance again. Yeah. So, 
I think for, for Americans, though, there, there, there is this very strong idea of the rugged individual, and uh, we, we put that up as a high cultural value. I don't know if there's a particular uh, god that we worship of that, but uh, uh, it's certainly a, a, a big part of our core beliefs. Mm-hmm. Part of the structure of your uh, mythic structure is the different stages of, of a hero's journey. Now, another element of it also is the archetypes of characters. I think whenever you speak about like archetypes or when people use that word, a lot of writers sometimes get a little fearful about it because they're afraid that their character is going to become a stereotype or cliche, uh, walking cliche. Yeah. Yeah, and I can I, I can relate to that. I think if somebody came at me and said, uh, "Oh, I have the, uh, uh, the the Nexus system, and it's uh, the, the the nine different character types," you know, I'd be a <laughs> nervous about that too. But um, this is just something that evolved out of uh, trying to understand what was going on in the story that I liked, and also in this super pattern that was identified by Campbell. And that super pattern is something that I sort of, uh, when I saw it laid out in Campbell, I vibrated to it somehow. It just sounded right to me. It excited me. It made sense to me. So then I went along at each little piece of it and tried to understand uh, why it was there and what purpose it served, uh, what, what it meant symbolically, what it meant psychologically. Uh, what purpose does it serve in the story of advancing the story, making the story more exciting, not just psychological or spiritual, but, uh, you know, really a cool story. Mm-hmm. So uh, all of that went into th- this idea of the archetypes because I kept seeing in the myths and in the movies the same kinds of patterns. And uh, just for convenience, I, I said, well, what is there some system to name all these things? These, similar things that keep coming up um, and, and the archetypes of, that are mentioned by Carl Jung and some other philosophers and, and psychiatrists, psych, psychologists, uh, those, uh, those terms uh, were useful. So I, I made a kind of a cast of characters. And you do talk about how these archetypes are, are more masks that the characters can change rather than just being such a locked-in trait and, and they never grow from that at all. Yeah, that, that was an evolution for me, too, because at first I took a simplistic view and I said, oh, I, I see now there's a hero and now there's a mentor and the hero will be like the hero all the way through the story and the mentor will be like a nice mentor and help the hero all the way through and the villain's going to be a complete rotten, you know, terrible person all the way through. And then I lived some life and saw mm-hmm. you know, life as a little more complex than that and also was made aware of some other theories. Like in my uh, second book, uh, I have another book called The Memo from the Story Department. And in that one, I tried to put all the stuff that isn't the Campbell, that isn't the hero's journey, but that was helpful in you know figuring out the, the overall pattern. And one of those things was the work of a Russian guy named Vladimir Prop, who looked at Russian fairy tales. And he had a similar thing to the archetypes, but he didn't call them characters, he called them functions. He said, here's, the, here's a job somebody has to do. It's not a character, it's a job somebody has to do in the story. And that liberated me about archetypes. I saw, oh, the archetype is a job that somebody's doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you're expressing the archetype of the hero at one moment, 
but in the next moment you might be expressing the archetype of the villain or the shadow or the coward or you know anything is possible so uh-huh. it really freed me up but it, it's still useful to identify well what job are they doing right now and those mm-hmm. jobs are pretty clear and pretty well known in the history of analyzing uh, myths and so forth uh, and, and in this, the work of this fellow Vladimir Prop, and, you know, he, he laid it out pretty clear. There's only so many jobs to do in a story. <laughs> you, you can save somebody. You can, you know, do something wrong, and you can try to correct something wrong, and you can chase somebody, and you can rescue somebody. And there's, you know, only so many things. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so I, I like I like to make things. Now, I'm, I'm a simple I'm a simplistic guy. I'm a I'm a reductionist. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but it does allow some freedom because you know characters can change, especially over time. I mean, like from uh, Jean Valjean and and you know from where he was, you know, yeah. you know the reason he's being chased and the person he is now, and then stories about these heroes who who they take on the leadership because it's corrupt. They get in power with all the best of intentions only to find themselves, you know, falling prey to the same type of corruption simply because of the system. Yeah. You know, and something interesting just happened. When you mentioned this about Jean Valjean, I got an actual physical reaction in my body. (laughs) I'm sensitive to that. When people are talking story and talking about how to make stories better or how stories work, their magic – uh, every once in a while, somebody says something that's true and right on the money, and I can feel it in my body. So this is part of my analysis and part of where I'm evolving to in my uh, sort of philosophizing about these things. But uh, you're, you're right uh, that 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 flexibility is is great. And I can just tell you that um, I know some filmmakers like uh, Darren Aronofsky is one who uses both the hero's journey outline, which has 12 stages that are you know, more or less the general things that have to happen in a story, and then the archetypes. He uses it in his analysis of all his films, and they have very lively discussions about, well, who is the mentor, and who is the shadow, and, you know, at this moment in the story, who's doing the job of uh, the shapeshifter? Mm-hmm. So it, it can be a, a really useful language and uh, a palette, you could say, for, for people to paint with. I feel like you you would have to really, especially for television, you have to have that uh, flexibility because in films, it's sort of like one self-contained self-contained story. You can have one journey, but in television, at least good television, you have seasons. <laughs> you, know, you, have, you have different. You know, the characters have to change over five more years or something, and then yeah, it can be really. Yeah, we're just going through a, a, a tremendous period now. It's a it's a wonderful period for the development of, of uh, long-form television and long-form storytelling in contrast to the idea that people have short attention spans. They have a really long attention span for a good story where people are going through these uh, kind of extreme evolutions and where you get to see a character turned around in, in every dimension. And, uh, you know, you see the, the dark possibilities and the, the the good potential. Uh, I'm thinking about uh, Sopranos and uh, movies, uh, series like that, where you live with the people for a long time, and mm-hmm. there's Jackie, you know, and, and turn them inside out. So it's it's great. Yeah, it's, no. it's very different than how TV writing was back in the 70s and yeah. 80s, especially much more it was episodic. A lot simpler. And, um, yeah. Um, now we've been kind of talking about the differences in different cultures and how they're different now, and we've kind of talked around it, but. Um, 
if you had to explain what a hero is and the variations on a theme, how would you break that down? Well, I would just say that uh, the hero is the audience character. And one of the things that has to do with these body reactions I was talking about is that there's a physiological reality uh, about watching a movie or hearing a story, which is that there is an identification that goes on. And you actually physically feel whatever the hero is feeling. Your, your body reacts as if it were happening to you. And so that's one thing about the heroes is that we... It's somebody we can identify with because they're like us, they're in a jam or they are misunderstood or they're suffering or they can't find love or whatever, something that we can relate to. And then they dignify the thing, the whole story, by making a little sacrifice, by giving up something dear to them because they need to grow or because the society needs something. And uh, that's you know kind of the classic definition of, of the hero in, in the myths is that they do things, maybe they want some treasure or they're trying to get a, a princess or something, but uh, they are, are really doing it for the, the whole culture. So there's that, um, that ennobling aspect of it, that you're, you're, you're giving up something, you're maybe going into danger, risking your life, like the people in the military have to, uh, you know, on behalf of everybody else. But there are variations of heroes, too. I think another one that you gave example oh. of is like Catalyst type hero, uh, the one that, yeah. doesn't, that doesn't necessarily change, but helps change other people, like, like characters like Superman or other characters like that. Yeah, the Lone Ranger was one, when I was a kid, that was an important example of it to me, because he would always come and he would do his uh, business sort of mysteriously and uh, you know, take care of things, and then he'd ride away, and all you'd have left was this, he'd leave behind a silver bullet as his calling card, and, and that kind of sums up that particular type of hero um, who is uh, more or less unchanged. There, there may be their personality was very strongly formed at an early stage in some fiery experience, uh, like many of the detective stories have a, a, a backstory to them of World War One or World War Two, where the, the hero was in espionage or was in the trenches or something and saw some pretty awful stuff and survived, and, and, and that, that shaped him very deeply. So um, those heroes, you know, sometimes are, are so, so firmly fixed, they don't, they don't undergo much change. But always, you know, even in a movie like that, that kind of story, there can be this little crack, uh, which, is, which is a lot of fun for the audience, where you see that yeah, maybe they did wake up a little bit or something stirred within them uh, in reaction to a younger person maybe. So uh, we like to see that uh, that possibility there, even in the, the ones that don't change much. Mm -hmm. Now we're talking about different countries and about their approaches to stories. In the book, you talk about two very different approaches to ending a story, like how in America, circular form structure, where the story has a sense of closure, is by far you know the most popular. But whereas in Asia, Europe, Australia, a more open-ended approach with unanswered questions, unresolved conflict seems to prevail. Why do you think that difference exists? Well, I, I think there's there's an appetite and, and a kind of an idea in different cultures of what art is, that our definition of art, I think, is partly formed by our Puritan, uh, this Puritan side of America. Uh, art should be functional, and it should sort of make sense. 
you know, it should, it should be like civic statues and things that where there's a reason that it's there. And uh, we never really were, were big about embracing abstract art. And, and uh, there's just more encouragement of art as a mystery in other cultures. We like the Americans, and again, making big generalizations, but as Americans, we like the answer, and we like a quick resolution, and we like to get there and uh, you know, drive fast and, uh, and, and get someplace. And the Europeans, I think, are more accustomed to uh, sit back and you know, enjoy the meal and kind of wonder, what is it all about? So in other parts of the world, there's just more uh, appetite for art and more of the definition of art as, as something mysterious. Mm-hmm. Well, I always felt, in a way, why people like to see a close-ended end to their story resolution is, you know, life is a little chaotic, or is very chaotic, and, you know, we're always looking for patterns in our lives anyway, and sometimes we can't find them, but we we find fulfillment by seeing them in our stories or of our characters. Yes. Do you, do you think that's true with American audiences? Yes, and I think also that the they they see they say about the heroes that uh, the kind of hero arises when you need that kind of hero, and and that the stories themselves are answers to questions uh, uh-huh. that we have about ourselves, and so uh, I, I think uh, you, you'll get in uncertain times maybe you'll get more reassuring stories, or or we need them more to to be sort of more. Conclusive, and then in, in maybe in when things are going a little more smoothly, we can entertain the other stuff. Yeah, like after 9/11, I think you saw a shift in some of the stories yeah, that were told. Yeah, there really were. Yeah, that was a mighty interesting time. I was preparing a series of clips for a, a class at UCLA, and uh, I, I found I couldn't use any of the clips because they all had some associations with with the towers falling and people falling out of buildings and things. And I was trying mm-hmm. to do something uh, about epic movies. And so I, I had, uh, you know, uh, pieces of Clash of the Titans and so forth. And I, I just could not escape the parallels and the, the comparisons that, that would have been made. So I, I dumped all of it and didn't at uh, that time immediately afterwards. And a lot of movies were canceled because they had images of the either the World Trade Center or some kind of, towers falling and people falling so yeah and then also i think everybody suddenly wanted to go it was almost like throwback to world war ii we're all in this together and we have to have a hero and 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 it has to they have to save the day and we have to be in the right and yeah yeah it was interesting also to me uh having gone through the vietnam war period i was in the military then though i didn't go over the seas i I served in the states only but uh, to see how we kind of had to rewrite the war uh, in our movies, uh, starting with things like Rambo, uh, where, uh, you know, in, in, in effect, we, uh, we got to re-mythologize it or heal the wounds of uh, having, mm-hmm. having lost. So yeah. uh, I, I think you can, you can look at things like uh, post-war disaster movies in Japan as something that, uh, just, somehow they're they're trying to work something out. That's all. They're just they're just uh, doing. It's like trying therapy. to come up with a collective catharsis for so that yeah. eventually, okay, now we can move on. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. I found it interesting too because you were talking about the 
we like to have a sense of closure with our American movies. And it's funny, I think sometimes it has to do with expectations. Because if I'm watching a movie you know, from another culture, I can kind of sit back, and then if it ends in a way that I wouldn't expect, I can go, eh, it's, a, it's French, or eh, it's yeah, right. Chinese. <laughs> but, you know, and, and then it works. But, like, if it's an American one and it seems open-ended, I'm like, I can deal with it being open-ended, but I want to know that the writer knows the answer. You know, like, it just yeah. bugs me more if it's an American movie. If it's not an American movie, I can go, eh, cultural difference. <laughs> well, here's, here's another way to, to look at this uh, distinction. I think that the closed circuit where we, we uh, answer all the questions and we resolve everything and we sort of tuck you into bed is the Hollywood way, and it's sort of parental. It's uh, speaking to the audience as I'm the adult and you're the child. Mm-hmm. And this, let's call it European uh, art house approach where, where the, the thing is left open-ended uh, is more adult to adult where the filmmaker's not saying, hey, I'm God and I've judged these people. You're saying, I'm just a person and I made a movie and you know you, you tell me what you think about it. You decide for yourself. So it gives more responsibility over to the, uh, to the audience. And I think that's, that's one of the things. But th- these worlds are crossing over more, I think, because you can tolerate ambiguous endings like that of the whole Sopranos series. That's a, the most ambiguous ending I can think of. Yeah. Uh, our, our movies are becoming more tolerant to that, and also the world cinema is becoming a little more like the American. I, I did some work in South Korea a couple of years ago, and uh, they're uh, very smart because they took the best of American form, but they kept it uniquely South Korean in its uh, subject matter or the look of the thing and some of the cultural values. So they, they're getting the best of both worlds. Now, speaking about filmmakers that break expectations or normal formulas, in the book you break down different films, and one of them that you break down that kind of fights against any kind of classic structure, but, but you show us that it doesn't necessarily break away from it completely, is Tarantino's Pulp Fiction. Um, Can you tell us, our listeners, a little bit more about how Pulp Fiction breaks down into this structure? Well, uh, yeah, I I, uh, was uh, amused by it because it sort of baffled me at first how how on earth am I going to put this together with my concepts when I really took it apart as a series of stories that are loosely interconnected. uh, I could see uh, that it, it was following sort of a hero's journey uh, line for two or three different people. And by doing these several stories in parallel, you got to see different outcomes of choices that people made. And that was interesting to me, that it, it put it in a moral universe where it, if you behave uh, a certain way, make certain choices, you're going to be destroyed. And uh, if, if you make other choices, you're, you're going to end up, you know, with a reasonably happy life or you're going to get out of it, the tight situation anyway. And I, particularly in the two characters of the play by Samuel Jackson and uh, John Travolta, those guys make different choices in reaction to being shot at and, you know, the, the, none of the bullets hit them. And Travolta thinks it's uh, no big deal. It's just a coincidence. But Samuel Jackson, I think... In the filmmaker's view, he correctly identifies it as a miracle, and it changes him, and he's a different guy at the end of the movie, and Travolta is not changed, and therefore he is destroyed. So uh, it's sort of like the filmmaker there is sitting in God's chair and and making judgments and saying, just like in an old-time, you know, John Ford movie, the good guys 
win and are rewarded and the bad guys are punished because they didn't make the right moral choices. Mm-hmm. Now, hypothetically, could you write a movie that does not follow this structure, doesn't have the archetypes? And if you did, would it work as a story? Yeah. yeah. Well, I think it would certainly be very interesting to do that exercise. In a way, I've done it. I made a student film, which was it was a samurai movie, but I deliberately set out to destroy narrative, and I just wanted it to be like a ritual or something detached from narrative. So I made sure there was no backstory for the character and no motivation for what was happening and no real relationships among other characters. And I was very proud of myself. Look, I made a, uh, an anti-Voglarian, anti-Campbellian movie just to show that it could be done. Did but it then work? When I, well, <laughs> no, but see, here's the thing. When I screened it for my fellow film students, they said, oh, it was amazing how you suggested the backstory and you created these relationships and, you know, they, they made it back into a, a Campbellian narrative over my dead body. So <laughs> I, I think the audience is so used to consuming things this way that they really can't understand it or consume it any other way. So if you gave them just a, a slop of colors and shapes and nothing, they'd, they'd start making a story out of it. So it sounds more like the Vogler-Campbellian structure isn't so much just you know what the storyteller does. It's almost like a contractual understanding between the storyteller and the audience because well, yeah, it doesn't well, really I, work either, you know, just one-sided. Yeah, there's another one of these. Just give me another shiver down my back. This is great. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it, it's true. There is a contract going on. That's a big thing for me. There's a contract between the filmmaker, the storyteller, and the audience. And the terms of the contract are that the audience is giving you something extremely valuable and rare, which is their attention. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because focused attention is about the rarest thing in the universe. (laughs) So it's valuable. Mm -hmm. And so they're giving you that. Imagine that, that you have the nerve. It takes a lot of nerve to be a filmmaker, storyteller to say, stop everything you're doing for two hours and only pay attention to me and what I want you to see and feel and hear. And, uh, boy, that's nervy. So, uh, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> yeah. so, uh, so you'd better give them something really, really good in payment for that. And, and I think uh, there are different ways to satisfy that contract. And one of them is this hero's journey pattern. And, you know, we haven't really said what that is, and I'll just briefly say the idea is somebody's in some kind of ordinary world and they leave it, uh, either they're fed up or they're chased out of there, and they go into some other world that they don't know and they're tested and uh, turned inside out and they almost die. But out of that, they come home having learned some lesson about themselves and uh, they've changed and the world has changed. And so uh, with those those kind of stories, that's one of the contracts is that you give somebody that kind of adventure, the feeling, okay, I went someplace and I, I watched somebody in an interesting situation get in the situation and out of the situation and, you know, it, it shook me up and I had some laughs. So that's one thing. But then there are other ways to satisfy that contract. And, you know, if you didn't have a particularly good hero's journey or not at all, you could still have an entertaining movie uh, if it 
has some characters I like or if it takes me to a world I've never been to before or it uh, makes me understand something I didn't understand before. Uh, all those are fine, fine uh, contracts. Or just, you know, make me f- go real fast. Make me move, <laughs> you know, real, real fast uh, is, is plenty for some people. Yeah, and feel something in the, in the process too. Well, you hope so, you know, it, it, that, that uh, you'll learn something. Uh, I think that's underestimated a lot in the whole culture of developing movies is that the audience really wants to be taught some lessons. They, they want some prescription for living. They want some wisdom, some kind of little guidelines. And people really live their lives by the movies they have seen and, and the things that the characters do. People take, you know, Star Wars, for one example. People have, you know, developed a very, very deep relationship with the Force and the whole world that it created, and so much so they'd rather live there than in this world. Mm-hmm. So uh, the thing is, uh, is quite powerful. Well, when I was a kid, I remember wanting to be Han Solo when I grew up. So <laughs> <laughs> it's very, it's very powerful. <laughs> yep. And I think some people even started a religion for the Force. Yeah, over in the UK, I think, is where there is a religion <laughs> developed through the concept of the Force, although that was before it was described as a parasite. <laughs> yeah. I wonder how that Yeah, Yeah, that, that was, that. yeah, that uh, that little clause uh, was a, a big shift for some people. Yeah, I but, wonder if uh, that lost some converts. <laughs> yeah, they have. May have, but, uh, you know, uh, I, I was amused uh, when I first came to Los Angeles. I was just flipping through the phone book, and I found a listing for the Church of Frankenstein in Hollywood. And apparently there was a Church of Frankenstein. So, uh, uh, you know, you can you can find your gods and goddesses where. Wow. Where, where, I'm going to have to research that. <laughs> that sounds bizarre. I love it. <laughs> In a very twisted, twisted way. I'd be worried. Way. I'd be like, your body becomes a property when you die. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what the terms were, but uh, uh, what, uh, what the what the rituals were like for the Church of Frankenstein. I'm sure there's the yellow pages. <laughs> it was in the yellow pages, and it was in Hollywood. That's all. I wow. Mean. I'm sure there's been stranger out there, but it is interesting. <laughs> now, this is a mystery I must re- must solve now. Well, yeah. Searching. Yeah. There you go. You have a quest now. <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of that genre, you know, we're we're fond of the sci-fi and fantasy genre here, so. Sure. Now, obviously, Star Wars is like a perfect fit for it, at least mm-hmm. the original trilogy. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, we just ignore the episodes one, two, and three. That's my. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, we just drive around those, but. They didn't um, happen. Yeah, the uh, they're in an alternate universe, but. Thank you. Um, people have told me that the the Matrix thing, the, the, especially the first Matrix movie, is is something that resonates with the hero's journey or my version of it so much that they just it, it has to be that uh, those guys, the, the Wachowskis, uh, had uh, had studied it. I, I don't know if that's true, but uh, oh, I can see that. Uh, yeah. I didn't get into it, so you can't go by me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You can't like everything. But I'd have to say uh, about science fiction and and fantasy that these were pretty darn important to me growing up. You know, of course, all of the paranoid science fiction movies of the 50s and 60s, um, Forbidden Planet and Invaders from Mars and things like that were right where I lived. But it was sort of a thread that I followed in the movie studios, and it was part of how I branded myself 
and made myself a little bit distinct from the other people who were doing the same job, was just my enthusiasm for uh, science fiction and fantasy. You know, I would go through the scripts on the shelf, and I'd pull those out and, and say, oh, can I read this? Can I read this? And I uh, got a, sort of a reputation of somebody who uh, liked it and, uh, and was the, the, the go-to person when they were discussing doing things like that. So. Now, what would be some of your favorite examples of both films and TV shows in the sci-fi, fiction, uh, sci-fi and fantasy genres that really fit this structure? Well, you know, I like the classics, and so uh, I've already mentioned uh, Invaders from Mars and, mm-hmm. uh, and Forbidden Planet. Forbidden Planet is one of those strange films like The Wizard of Oz that's just outside of its time. It's like, how could they have made that movie <laughs> then? You know, it just doesn't, it doesn't add up somehow. They were, they were really works of the imagination that uh, transcended their own time period. I uh, could get into a discussion, I guess, about uh, the recent Prometheus, which is one thing that uh, can impress some people. Other people are disappointed by it. Uh, I, I was satisfied by it because Ridley Scott just can make some great scenes. He just uh, you know, delivers something fantastic in every movie. There'll be four or five amazing sequences. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's, uh, that's enough for for me sometimes, for an evening's entertainment. (laughs) (laughs) And as far as television shows, do you have any that you think really fit that, or is that kind of its own thing? Yeah, it is. Uh, I'm uh, enjoying uh, going back and catching, for some reasons, I uh, wasn't watching the uh, uh, Starship Enterprise, uh, the uh, Jean-Luc Picard uh, period, and so I'm going back and catching some of those now, and I just like those because... They are so earnestly making little dramas, you know, and uh, using science fiction as uh, almost an excuse for doing uh, what they uh, really are after, which is these human dramas, like the Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone was Mm -hmm. like, that was their, uh, you know, the fantasy was really almost a ruse to get you to think about more human things. So that's the kind of, I'm sure that's how you feel about science fiction. Too. Yeah, and the anthology, I love, we loved The Outer Limits, you know. You got to right. see a new movie every week. Yeah, yeah, that, and, and quite creepy, you know, if you can put yourself back in the day when it was, these things were coming on for the first time, you would anticipate uh, the original black and white Outer Limits even uh, with some trepidation because you didn't know what they were going to dish up that would be disturbing, you know. And uh, that was part of the fun of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we grew up on those and and uh, Star Trek: Next Generation. And John Luke, yeah. Captain John Luke Picard is my favorite captain. <laughs> I just I adore Patrick Stewart. So you picked yeah. a good one. <laughs> yeah, well, he's he's an interesting guy because I don't think he knew anything about it uh, when he no. first got into it, and uh, uh, so he he kind of grew to have a genuine uh, affection for it and obviously was enjoying himself as an actor, mm-hmm. getting to do uh, lots of uh, lots of different things and wear different costumes from different time periods. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think he's even admitted, you know, Captain Jean-Luc Picard comes on and he's kind of an uncomfortable fit for the crew at first. And, and yeah. he's even said, you know, he, he actually was as an actor, he thought. 
um, yeah. that he he just he didn't he wasn't as familiar with it. He didn't really fit in with them as much. He he was he even said he goes I had to learn to lo- lighten up, loosen up a little bit, <laughs> and, right. and kind of, and, but his, and his character did too. And so you know he ended up kind of going parallel with his character when it came to eventually developing you know some camaraderie and kind of growing into that role. Yeah, it, I'm remembering now that um, uh, the original series and the uh, later versions helped my thinking about the archetypes a little bit because there were recurring roles. You know, you have always a uh, data-type character. Uh, there's, there's always going to be somebody who's not quite human, mm-hmm. um, who's, you know, super intellectual, representing that side of the brain or that part of the a complete person, and, and, and I think the, the whole crew put together, it's like the Three Musketeers. Mm-hmm. Those three guys, or actually it's four guys, uh, represent a complete male identity, and, uh, you know, they've uh, separated them out, but uh, together, you put them all in a box, you'd have a, a good human being. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you really would, and, and the good thing about an ensemble cast like that is that you don't have to worry about having one person doing some long monologue. You're going to have one person pointing out the logic, someone else pointing out right. pointing out the emotional aspect, someone else pointing out the rules, you know, <laughs> so, and, it, and it kind of kind of writes itself when you have more people, I think. Yeah, and I, I admired that series too because they uh, let the actors take their wheel sometimes and let them do some directing, and some of them had that ambition. Uh, Jonathan Frakes, for one, so uh, they uh, they were generous, I think, about uh, letting people try some different things, and they had time. They had uh, enough episodes to fill that uh, they could do quite a quite a, a lot of interesting experimentation. Mm-hmm. Now, what about? A science fiction movie or television series that failed to embrace that format that, uh, you know, I mean, they had characters that overlapped, you know, rather than being four separate parts of a person so they can uh, help each other. or uh, Asking the hard questions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah Instead, they overlapped that is, that and they had a, other flaws. That is a hard one. I don't know. Um, I, I think without naming particular films, you can see in the history of Hollywood when a studio kind of gets its nose into things and they try and make a science fiction movie that isn't really inspired by science fiction or science fiction type people, uh, sometimes you get a, uh, a painful result. Uh, there have been a, a number of films recently or over the last few years that have had to do with near-Earth exploration, you know, going to Mars and uh, going and finding some strange monolith on Jupiter or something, um, and uh, they're they're pretty forced and artificial because I, I think that's just a true believer thing. You have to grow up in science fiction and love it, and when the studios try to force it, it's it's uh, the result is pretty creepy. <laughs> well, I wonder just to get more specific because it's the original Star Wars trilogy is probably one of the most famous examples I can think of that you know really fits. The hero's journey really, really well for Luke yeah, Skywalker. Yeah, it's pretty well universally understood. One through three isn't quite as good. <laughs> yeah. But then, but yeah, but then a lot of people didn't like the the newer trilogy, and I, and I'm curious why you think mythic structure wise why it made a faltered a little bit. Like one obvious thing is okay, we have a hero's journey, and that would be Anakin, right? But yet Anakin's you know, ultimate end is to become Darth Vader. So how's that affect you? I don't think it has to do necessarily with knowing he's going to be Darth Vader. Because, like, I knew the Titanic was going to sink, but I still watched the movie and yeah. liked it. 
So <laughs> there's got to be but, more to it than just knowing about, he's going to. The Titanic is about the relationship yeah, between us two guys. It wasn't about, about, the about ship. that damn boat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, uh, it, it was, it was a, a little bit of a challenge that, uh, you know, your hero's going to grow up to be worse than Hitler. But uh, uh, it, it, uh, I'm waiting for the Hitler trilogy. It's going to be great. <laughs> Not in Germany. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but uh, I, I think it, it, someone has uh, pointed out there's a marvelous analysis of all this uh, on the Internet, and many of them that people have done, but there's one good one. I, you may know the one I'm thinking of, but uh, where they just do a comparison of the opening of the uh, uh, original, let's call it original uh, Star Wars Episode Four, I guess it is, mm-hmm. um, compared to Episode One. And, and how, you know, you're in episode one, you're kind of backed into it by having to discuss the trade alliance. And, you know, you don't get down to the real people for uh, too long of a time. Uh, and it was a little bit abstract. And I, I think uh, maybe it just has to do with uh, the original films, the original trilogy, being very close to George Lucas's childhood. Uh, you know, it's closer in time to to that than he is now, and uh, maybe it still had some of that uh, crackle of the young person's uh, imagination. So. Yeah, because I think it was a bit cumbersome, you know, the episodes one through three, and the, the Senate meetings, and this and that, and i got to tell you, I've actually watched some, you know, British Parliament on television, and that's more interesting. People really are getting irate, and yelling, and, and cussing <laughs> at each other, and cutting them off, and turning red in the face, and I'm like... Yeah, they should have done that for Star Wars because I, mean, I half expect a fist fight to break out at any moment in the UK Parliament. You know, whenever they're really going at it. <laughs> well, my, my feeling too was that um, they, they they needed a leavening of humor. They needed to hire Carrie Fisher to come in and punch <laughs> up jokes. Uh, <laughs> What she's good at, I mean, she she makes a good living in Hollywood doing exactly that, and I'm sure she would have been glad to help with uh, with some some funny lines. But it, it just no, you're right. That. Carrie Fisher would have it, been it great. It took itself it took itself very seriously, and um, you know, that, that, you know, that, it almost seemed like a lot of the time it took itself too seriously, except Jar Jar Binks, for example, oh. and then it was just so over the top. And I think yeah. that that was a it was a bit concept. of an overshoot. Yeah. Yes. Well, uh, you know, he's he's. I must say, he's growing on me little by little. <laughs> I'm less intolerant of him than I used to be. <laughs> well, you know, he's not going anywhere. Once you're in a yeah, movie, you're right. there forever. So you might as well yeah. get used to it. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. I mean, you know, he could be erased. Uh, he oh, could be digitally removed. Oh, or, uh, I would. I still want to watch the original, original one. You know, yeah. just, just the one I well, grew up. Well, there were some. There were some interesting changes um, that that sort of affected almost the religion of the whole thing, if you want to talk that way. Uh, there, there was a change made in the cantina sequence. I still say Han uh, shot first. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it, it, and, and that affected how I felt about the character later on, about Han Solo uh, later on, that I didn't expect him to be a hero and to step up and, you know, show up at the last minute. I had written him off, uh, which is actually good dramatically. I, I sort of like, uh, because he, you know, shot somebody without asking or, you know, <laughs> uh, just pulled his gun out and shot him um, uh, in, an, in an unchivalrous way. 
you know, I, I had low expectations for that character. So they, they sort of cleaned his act up in the <laughs> digital rendition, and uh, it, these these things do make a difference. Yeah, I liked how it, it was. An, I like the way you were, used the word unchivalrous because you know he he is a rough. He and it, he was, you know, a smuggler and very unchivalrous. You know, shot first because he just knew it was going to happen. But then you see him change and get more chivalrous because of his relationship with these people. So, I don't know, it kind of gave him a little bit more room to grow. Yeah, yeah. He's a hesitant yeah, person. Yeah, yeah. He's big in Australia. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 very likely. Yeah. yeah. Who knew? Yeah. I'm Australian. <laughs> Uh, but Boba, Boba Fett was Australian. <laughs> yeah. New, maybe he's a New Zealander. That, that there, it doesn't that. say he's a yeah. Kiwi. There you go. <laughs> I was curious about asking you about web series uh, because we do a lot of, we talk a lot of web series creators, you know, the web television movement of recent. And I don't know, maybe you haven't really watched very much web television, but uh, if you had, if you have seen any of it and have an opinion, you know, what do you think? That how that's been developing and how that might st- change trying to approach such like ten minute or less episodes. Although they are, I, I think, uh, I, I don't know much about it. I think it's fantastic. Um, what I, I little I know was shown to me by uh, DC Fontana, who is the story editor on Star Trek, and she's been very involved in uh, encouraging those and writing them. And uh, she showed some. Uh, she was at a film conference and she showed some clips of uh, a totally fan-done um, continuation of the old Star Trek series. And the, the, the guy puts up the money himself. Uh, he doesn't want any help from Paramount because then he doesn't have to pay any attention to their uh, story ideas. And uh, they just assumed that uh, that it didn't stop production back in the 60s and, 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 and continued on. And that's absolutely fabulous. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, yeah, I think you're talking about Star Trek New Voyages. Yeah, that might be that might be what it's called. Yeah, because I know. And then she she showed some clips of another one that was uh, Sword and Sorcery, that was all uh, fan done and uh, very uh, uh, brief episodes, but uh, very entertaining and creative. And, and so why not? <laughs> I've had the pleasure of working with Star Trek New Voyages. Recently. Yeah, Mark's actually has worked on the New Voyages, the Star Trek. Oh, great. It's kind of funny you mentioned that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I just was thrilled by the idea of it, by, by just the, you know, again, the nerve. Uh, somebody had the nerve to uh, deny reality and say, uh, I love this so much, I'm just going to keep on making it. And uh, <laughs> it's great the way they do little tributes. They'll get uh, people who were in minor roles and, you know, make them the ambassador now or something in their current episodes. So it's good. Is there anything else you would like to share with us to point out about how you know the writer's journey might differ from some other uh, writing books out there? Well, I think it, it, it's just by feedback, as people have reported to me, uh, there is something extra going on uh, in, in this uh, mythological way of looking at things. Because, for one thing, what I describe in the book is a great little template for planning a movie, you know, tells you the things you really ought to have and some kind of an idea how to sequence things. But it's a lot more than that. There is a kind of uh, guideline for living embedded in the myths, uh, kind of ethics, and uh, uh, also a, a predicting device that, that uh, tells you what's going to happen on a journey or when you try to do something difficult. 
uh, go on any kind of an adventure. Uh, and this uh, hero's journey pattern that Campbell describes and that I sort of rewrote to, to make it match what I saw in the movies uh, is a very good travel guide. Uh, it's really very helpful when you have to go on uh, long trips because it sets you up, it predicts the kind of uh, difficulties you'll face and how you're going to get out of them. And it's a useful tool in mm -hmm. the human toolbox. Yeah, I, I, I saw that at the end, and I have to say I was so happy to see it because if, if, if you're like me and you've spent more time than you would like out working, you know, regular jobs in corporate America, everybody is always pushing a new, you know, self-help or better management book, and this changed my life, and they hand it to you, and all I can think of is this is really bad pseudo-pop psychology written at what could be generously described as a third grade reading level, and you just want to scream to people, read good literature, watch good movies, think for yourself, and you won't have to have somebody who's a new, uh, you know, self-help guru tell you what to do in your life, you know? <laughs> it's just, yeah, just read, just read To Kill a Mockingbird or, you know, watch the movie and you'd, you'd learn a lot more about uh, ethics. Yeah, and it, it just it just you just sort of want to scream because everybody is yeah. like, you've got to get with the program if you really want to improve yourself and be better at this. You need to read this, and it's like it's crap. It's not real. <laughs> it's not real literature. You know, read something good. Read read Beowulf. You know, go back and and reread some of the good literature you read as you know when you're younger and you've probably forgotten. You know, you know, read To Kill a Mockingbird. Watch To Kill mm -hmm. a Mockingbird for crying out loud if you don't want to read it. <laughs> but, and then, you know, think about it instead of just passively doing it. And then you won't have to have somebody, you know, in a, you know, in a, I started to say cassette tape, that's dating me, uh, you know, an MP3 driving to work telling you, you know, be happy with your job. Do this. <laughs> so I was happy you put that on there because I thought, oh, good, maybe someone will make the connection that you can do that with yourself. <laughs> so that was my rant. Anything that you would like to mention that we haven't either yeah, either brought up or have only barely touched well, on? Yeah, I, I have touched a couple of times on this business about uh, feeling it in your body. And this is an important uh, element uh, to me that I'm developing more and more these days is trying to understand where are the triggers in the body. And this comes from partly from Campbell's idea about the myths. He said the myths are programmed somehow, the images in them and the situations are programmed to go right into the organs of the body and they sort of bypass the brain. Um, and that's what I like about uh, about the movies when they do that, when they just kind of short circuit my brain and they go right into my organs and make my heart pound or uh, make my guts twist with tension or they make my skin crawl with horror or, you know, the thrill goes uh, down my spine, uh, you know, these different different physiological reactions. And they really are your organs responding to these imaginary things happening on a screen to some imaginary person but it works and uh, I, I like to say if a script or a movie is not making two or more organs of your body squirt fluids it's no good <laughs> <laughs> and I, like I, that. I, I mean that the, the, the images and the sound and the music and the emotions and all that stuff actually cause the organs of your body to secrete fluids like your tear ducts mm -hmm. or when you choke up uh, the glands in your throat close up because uh, uh, fluid has been released. 
mm-hmm. in reaction to something emotional. So uh, all those things, uh, adrenaline and all the other physiological reactions uh, are, you know, it's your body squirting. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, it's it doing weird, more but, than just your brain. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the organs are involved. And so I, I'm calling it organic filmmaking, organic storytelling. I love uh, so, that. Yeah. <laughs> Because that's what I what I think we are trying to do is, whether we know it or not, as filmmakers, that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to cause the people to have, to really feel something and not just feel like, oh, yeah, I had this thought, but um, I felt something. I, I felt uh, something moving or something uh, changing, and uh, that's what I look for. Mm-hmm. I don't think people think about that as much. I think it's most – I think it's really easy for people to think of it on a – Micro level with uh, music <clears throat> or acting. One song can, you know, make you feel something. Yeah. Well, they they pin it on the actors, but it's like the saying, you know, if it's if it ain't on the page, it ain't on the stage, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it yeah starts, well, I think they, it's an act of courage on the part of the writer to just really go there. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Speaking of music, uh, it's interesting. People have studied this singer Adele, and have said that. Um, she does a little thing with her voice that actually makes people cry. I uh, believe it. Yeah, it's called, a, a, there's a technical term for it. It's in Italian. It's called an appoggiatura. She does an appoggiatura, which is a little warble. At a certain point, about three-quarters of the way through her song, uh, she'll do this vibration. And it, it, it emotionally, it seems to mean I'm having an emotional breakthrough, mm-hmm. and I'm I'm getting to some level to tell you about this situation, romantic situation, where I'm really exposing myself, and uh, you're feeling the real raw emotion, and that seems to trigger something in people. So well, I, I love this stuff. Yeah. yeah, good. Then I feel a little less ridiculous about tearing up during the Oscars when she's saying <laughs> <Okay>. it. Okay. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. I don't usually do this, but that yeah. was great. Well, it's almost involuntary, you know. I think we can try to choke these things down a little bit, but there the organs are squirting, so what's Yeah. Yeah, well, I was by myself, so, you know, my cats and my rabbit didn't care. <laughs> <laughs> they might have been a little confused, but, you know. <laughs> All right, well, you have The Writer's Journey. You also have your book, Memo, from the Story Department. Is there any other projects uh, or books that you wanted to let our audience know about? Yeah, uh, you could also uh, remind people uh, that there's a book called Myth in the Movies, which was written by a colleague of mine named Stuart Voitella, and uh, that looks at 50 different movies and analyzes the hero's journey in each one of them, which is a little bit different from genre to genre, and I think it was a great exercise that Stuart did, uh, very helpful. Uh, and, and I'll just uh, say a word more about the memo from the story department. This was co-written with a friend of mine, David McKenna, who is uh, sort of my twin uh, brother, in a sense, in, in uh, New York. And he does what I do in Hollywood. He does it in New York, advising on uh, movie companies on what scripts to buy and how to make them ready for the screen. And uh, we just poured into that everything uh, we know. He has a great system in there about analyzing a script or a character from six different points of view, you know, the social and the geographical and the religious and the uh, economic situation of the characters and so forth. And uh, it's a great multi-dimensional way to look at things. 
and I mentioned, I have chapters in there, I think maybe the one that is, has proven most useful to people is called The Scene is a Deal, uh, or What's the Big Deal? And the idea is just that every scene is a transaction, and uh, I didn't understand that for a long time. I thought a scene was just, you know, could be information or character revelation, but uh, no, a scene is a deal. There's some kind of transaction that goes on, and this ties up with what we talked about earlier, about the contract with the audience. Uh, there's a contract in every scene, and there's a contract in every movie, so you got to fulfill those contracts. Yeah, <laughs> and can you let our audience know where they could find you and your work online? Uh, well, my website is uh, www.thewritersjourney.com. All one word, no punctuation needed. Thewritersjourney.com, and that'll that'll get you in there. And you can you can read the original memo there. The seven-page memo is reprinted there, and also some essays about different films I've worked on. Spent some time in the editing room on an independent feature, and. Uh, worked on uh, The Thin Red Line. There's a little essay about that, so uh, you can find some interesting material there to follow up. <laughs> Sorry, when you said your memo and the reaction people had to it, all I could think of was Martin Luther and his, you know, 95 thesis, and you should have just, you know, nailed it to a door somewhere and seen what the reaction Yeah, I, I, I should have nailed it to the, to the Paramount Gates. Yeah, that would have been cool. Because uh, that was touched off a bit of a firestorm as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm not exactly uh, the Reformation, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I hope I, think, I have some impact. Yeah. Well, I tell you what, you give me some idea for some homework. I think Marks and I should finish reading this, and then we've been really big into the TV show Spartacus and just really kind of plot that out <laughs> for some exercise. Yeah, I, I love the long form like that. I haven't seen that one, but I have enjoyed Game of Thrones and uh, – the Borgias, I thought, was fabulous. I, I think there's great opportunities there in that longer form. Yeah, yeah. So. And I, I love Game of Thrones because uh, it's created by a toy collector. I'm a toy collector, and I uh, actually I, I have been in correspondence with the author, George R.R. R. Martin, and he's got a huge collection of knights and castles, and that has all inspired him, and uh, you know, it's partly why he did Game of Thrones, was so they would make some nice toy soldiers out of it. <laughs> That's cool. All right. Well, thank you so much for chatting with us today. Yes, thank you. It was really a pleasure. Yes, my pleasure too, Julia and Mark's uh, very stimulating. You obviously know your material, so uh, <laughs> have fun. Uh, trust the force and uh, follow, follow, follow your bliss and all these other things. And <laughs> well, thank you. And keep in touch with us. Let us know um, when you have anything else coming up and you'd like to come back. We'd love to have you. Yes. Thanks a lot. This was a lot of fun. Jennifer Dornbush, and I'm the author of Forensic Speak, How to Write Realistic Crime Dramas, and you're listening to Genretainment. Well, special thanks to Chris for taking the time to chat with us, and if you're a writer, we would suggest his books to help hone your writing craft. So that's it for today's Genretainment. Check back next week with all new guests from our favorite films, TV shows, novels, and web series. 
And coming up very soon, we will have Lisa Dean, the creator of the animated series Chilltown TV, and also the producer and director of the POV action web series Armed Response on the YouTube action channel Hard Coded. And don't forget, you can always check out all of our past episodes of Genretainment in the archives at scifipulseradio.com. You can also check out the other great shows on this channel like SFP Now, The Roundtable, and Jeff Trek. Genretainment will be back right here on this channel next week. Thank you to all of you out there for listening to us. Until, Until next, next time. time.